Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for October 7th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, and I'm very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, your source, each Friday, for insightful analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate developments. This week's show regards two significant cases with outsized implications, one a class action employment suit set to further refine just what California employers can require of employees during rest breaks, the other a federal securities law ruling that broadens company executive liability in the wake of financial restatements but leaves some significant ambiguities within that doctrine. First, Kieran Selden of Seifarth Shaw will visit to discuss Augustus v. ABM Security Services. In case which heard oral arguments last week before the California Supreme Court, there a class of security guards filed suit against ABM claiming the company's policy requiring employees to be on call and able to discharge work responsibilities if needed during rest periods violated state labor codes. The plaintiffs contend that state law requires employers to relinquish all control over employees during those breaks, which includes the power to summon them back to work. A trial court sided with the plaintiffs and awarded $90 million in damages. The second appellate district reversed that ruling, finding on-call breaks permissible. As the case could significantly expand employer liability, in these contexts it has drawn a number of amicus filings from both sides of the argument. One authored by Ms. Selden who will describe why, in her view, the second district ruling should stand. Then, John Cannon of Stradling will visit to analyze a recent Ninth Circuit securities ruling in SEC v. Jensen, which included two important holdings making company executives more vulnerable to disgorgement of certain income, even where those executives didn't necessarily engage in any wrongdoing or recklessness. One holding relates to Section 304 of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, and instructs that in the wake of financial restatements, executives may be subject to disgorgement whether or not their personal misconduct gave rise to those restatements. The other holding reads an independent cause of action into a rule of the Securities Exchange Act that requires executives to sign submitted financial documents. The Ninth Circuit held that a claim may be brought against executives not just when they fail to sign such documents, but also when they sign documents that contain some false information. Importantly, as Mr. Kanan will describe, the appellate panel neglected to discuss the sort of knowledge requirement necessary in suits under either the Securities Exchange Act rule or Section 304, making the opinion suggestive of an unforgiving, strict liability sort of rule. Mr. Kenan will discuss what that means for company executives and how this doctrine may develop further. But first, and as always, let me remind you that CLE Credit is available for podcast listeners. It's very simple. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. And with that, we'll hear from Ms. Kieran Selden of Saifar Shah to discuss Augustus versus ABM Security Services. I'm very happy to welcome in now Kieran Selden, a senior counsel with Saifarth Shah, where she works in the Labor and Employment Department and the Appellate Law Practice Group. She filed an amicus brief on the, the side of the employer defendants here. Ms. Selden, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. So we're discussing Augustus first ABM security services, which essentially asks the question of whether employees can be on call during rest periods or whether they must be relieved of all duties and all potential to discharge duties. But before we get into that specific question, let's walk through some of the underlying facts here. What was the policy that the employer here, ABM security services, had for the rest breaks it provided its employees? So this uh, case deals uh, specifically with security guards, and the uh, rule that was being challenged was uh, that security guards uh, in the class, and in fact not all of them, which we'll get into, but some of the security guards in the class had been subject to a policy where they had to carry radios or pagers with them during rest breaks uh, so that you know if a need arose for them to return, whether it be for an emergency or a mechanical problem that needed addressing, uh, that they would be able to hear the radio or pager and know when to come back. Uh, so that was uh, the policy that the plaintiffs alleged prevented them from having a compliant rest break. Perhaps to set a bit of the, the statutory context here, what, what are some of the statutes and orders that pertain to how rest breaks must proceed in, in this context? So there's really three different uh, concepts that are sort of overlapping and the courts are struggling with how to reconcile. So for rest breaks, 
um, and meal breaks. There are wage orders uh, that apply to various industries. The one at issue here is Wage Order 4, and it sets out basic requirements for meal and rest breaks. And for rest breaks, uh, it says you have to have a 10-minute rest break for every four hours of work or a major fraction thereof. And it says that those rest breaks are considered hours worked, which means that they're paid. Uh, by contrast, uh, meal breaks in the same wage order in a different provision are 30 minutes. Um, they must be provided after at least five hours of work. Um, and uh, those, uh, specifically, the wage order says uh, the employees must be relieved of all duty. And that time is not considered hours worked and it's not paid. Um, so th- that's the distinction. And then there's also um, a labor code provision, Section 226.7b, that says it prohibits an employer from uh, requiring an employee to work. And so the focus and the crux of the dispute here is what does it mean to work or not work during a rest break? And that's an issue that hasn't really specifically been addressed in terms of on-call. So we've got three different concepts sort of floating out there. This idea of is um, something hours worked, meaning you have to pay for it? Um, Do you have to be relieved of all duties, as in the case of meal breaks? And third, what does it mean to work or not work, and does that uh, differ depending on whether you're talking about a meal or a rest break. A lot of overlapping language there and some some joints yeah. in, in between them. So with the claim here, the plaintiffs essentially are asserting the argument that it violated pertinent law to be on call during their rest break, correct? Correct, correct. Um, and uh, this case has been out there for a while. It was filed in 2005, and it's beha- on behalf of close to 15,000 security guards going all the way back to 2001. And their basic, basic theory uh, was that the they weren't relieved of all duties because they had to carry this pager and remain on call during the breaks. Um, so that was the, the essential theory. And there was some debate as to just how often the employees would actually, in fact, be called back to work during those breaks. But um, the claim remains whether um, whether or not they were called back, just the, the fact that they had to carry those radios and be on, on demand. Yeah, and in fact, um, the Court of Appeal opinion pointed out that um, plaintiffs had offered no evidence that anyone had ever actually been interrupted on their rest break. Um, The evidence was that there had been no interruption, and and ABM had put in evidence um, that security guards, whether they carried the pagers or not, were you know reading, smoking, surfing the internet during their break. So it's really more the just the mere act of carrying the pager um, and being on call that that's squarely at issue here. Okay. And addressing that question, the trial court sided with the plaintiffs. What uh, what was their reasoning and what did they consider to be the most pertinent inquiry here? Yeah. So the trial court, um, they certified the class and then after certifying the class, uh, granted summary judgment. And uh, what the trial court said is it, it focused on control. And it said that what's relevant is that the employees are still subject to the control of the employer and for a rest break, you can't be in the control of the employer. Otherwise, a rest period would be part of the work day for which the employer would be required to pay wages in any event. Now, the issue with that reasoning is, as I mentioned earlier, rest breaks are already paid and they already are um, considered hours worked. And the way hours worked is defined um, is time that's subject to the employer's control. Uh, so that's already a, a given premise for for rest breaks. Um, but then the trial court also went on and said, but before that, in his tentative ruling, he sort of uh, came up with a, a you know a, a black letter rule that said, if you're on call, you're not on break. And when you know ABM had pointed out that there are uh, security guards that don't even carry radios or pagers in the class, the trial court said, well, there are many alternatives to the radio, such as cell phone, pager, and a tap on the shoulder, fetching. There's lots of different ways in which the employer can call you back and exercise that control. So it was a very broad ruling. And based on that, he granted summary judgment for the entire class and awarded a $90 million judgment in the case. Like you, the second appellate district that heard this appeal was skeptical of the trial court's reasoning. They overturned that award. Um, In the appellate court's opinion, why um, was requiring employees to remain on call not violative of labor standards? So the appellate court um, picked up on the distinction between time being paid and uh, time being worked. And it pointed out that because rest breaks are 
paid, you know, control, as far as the Court of Appeal concerned, control is not the relevant factor. Uh, and essentially, its reasoning boiled down to, um, you know, being re- remaining available to work, such as by being on call and uh, having a pager is not the same as performing work. Uh, and it viewed work in you know, Section 226.7, the prohibition against working, as being something that actually requires exertion, actually performing your duties, as opposed to being on call, which it considered to be a more passive state where, you know, as in this case, employees were free to do what they wanted during the rest break in terms of leisure activities and, and you know, personal activities. So it was not moved by this idea of control, and it really focused on, is there active exertion, and are you doing your job duties? So the relevant inquiry is, are you actually doing work? Are you performing job duties during the risk break? Yes. There was a relatively important case filed out of the California Supreme Court a few years ago that touched on working during during breaks. That was Brinker Restaurant Corp versus Superior Court. And that was um, argued by the plaintiffs as controlling here and, and determining the case in, in their favor. Can you tell me a bit about Brinker and, and why the Court of Appeals felt it did not determine the outcome in favor of the plaintiffs here? Sure. Brinker is a sort of a blockbuster decision that came out a few years ago, and it touched on a number of issues that are important to uh, California labor and employment law and class certification. It laid out um, standards for class certification and also talked about the timing of meal and rest breaks and the nature of meal breaks. And specifically, the part of um, Brinker that plaintiffs are relying on is the part that talks about um, what it means for an employer to provide a compliant meal break. And there, Brinker said that, you know, the employer must relieve its employees of all duties and relinquish control over the employee's activities uh, so that they have a reasonable opportunity to take an uninterrupted 30-minute break and the employer can't, you know, discourage the employee from doing so. And what it relied on um, was, in part, the language of the wage order uh, that directs that, you know, the employees, you must relieve them of all their duties. So plaintiffs uh, advocated and did so again at oral argument recently in front of the California Supreme Court that that same standard uh, should apply for meal breaks too, the relinquishment of control and relief from all duties. And what the Court of Appeal in in this Augustus case said is, well, no, because Brinker did not say anything. It said a lot of things, but it didn't say anything about what the nature of a rest break is. Uh, and this language about, you know, relieving employees of all duties comes from the wage order and is just not relevant uh, to the rest break and, and how you define what is a compliant rest break. Sure. I think even seeding that point that Brinker was more, dealt more with meal periods than rest periods, the plaintiffs would still argue that the, the reasoning is analogous, that if all duties must be relieved during meal periods, that, that should apply also to rest periods. Why did the Court of Appeals not sort of use the same logic in, in rest periods? Yeah, and I think, um, again, it comes back to the text of the wage order. Um, provision Subdivision 11A talks about meal periods and specifically has this relieved of all duty language. And Subdivision 12A is the one that deals with rest periods, and it doesn't have that language at all. And so what the Court of Appeal said is if the IWC, which was the entity that uh, promulgated these wage orders and wanted the same standard to apply, uh, it could have used and, sh- and would have used the same language, and that it didn't do so indicates that the same relieved of all duty standard doesn't apply, and so you, it's permissible to have this on-call duty remain during rest periods. Um, and the other point that the appellate court made was that the IWC orders, um, the wage orders, do have a provision for on-duty meal periods in certain, in certain circumstances that um, can be paid. And so they said, well, that implies that an on-duty rest period, which is also paid, is permissible. Uh, so that, that you, know, you can't rely on Brinker, which deals with one provision, to talk about rest periods, which are in a totally different context. Can we talk just a bit about the distinction that the Court of Appeals draws here between actively performing duties during a rest break, which would not be allowable, and just being on call, uh, being on demand to perform those duties if necessary? Why do you feel that there's enough of a distinction, and why does the Court of Appeal feel that there's enough of a distinction between those two things? I know plaintiffs would contend that being on call, being on demand to work is, is pretty much the same as, as working, especially perhaps in this context where, to some degree, the job of a security guard is sort of 
that remaining, you know, being on guard, waiting f- to respond to, to emergencies or, or things that require their attention. So why um, is there enough of a distinction between actively working and uh, just waiting to work? Yeah, I think you're right that the context of security guards does sort of uh, make it seem like it's a little fuzzy. And at the oral argument um, last week in front of the California Supreme Court, they were definitely uh, sort of struggling with defining the parameters of, well, being on call kind of looks like what a security guard does anyway. Um, but I, I think there is still a distinction. And as um, ABM's lawyers pointed out, there are a whole host of duties that security guards have to perform when they're actually um, on the job and not on break, uh, including things like escorting guests to the parking lot, patrolling the building, reporting safety issues, greeting visitors. So there's a whole host of things that um, they have to do when they're on duty. And they're not doing any of those things when they're on their rest break. They simply have, in some cases, a pager on them, and in others, they don't even have a pager at all. They're just you know, taking their break, and then there remains the possibility that they'll get called back. Um, so, you know, even in this context of security guards, I think it is possible to make a distinction between passively being on call and waiting to work uh, uh, and uh, actually doing work itself. And if you move outside of the security guard context, you know, I think the distinction can become even clearer. You know, for example, if I'm a nurse on a rest break, eating a snack and reading a book, uh, it's pretty different than you know, me being in a hospital room taking care of a patient. So, you know, as much as uh, plaintiffs, I think, were trying to show that it's fuzzy and it's difficult to distinguish, I think in reality it actually is something that can be distinguished. Another interesting twist in this appeal is shortly after the Intermediate Appellate Court filed its opinion, the California Supreme Court ruled in a case also involving security guards and involving on-call duty and involving compensation for that time in a case called Mendiola versus CPS Security Solutions mm-hmm. um, that was determined favorably for the security guards there. Subsequently, the appellate court modified its opinion in, in this case, Augustus, to incorporate that high court ruling and, and to say that this case is still on solid ground. Um, can you tell me a bit more about Mendiola, why the appellate court said that it didn't impact this decision and, and how it might bear on this appeal? Yeah, so Mendiola addresses one of the three moving parts that we talked about earlier, um, and that was about whether the time has to be paid for. In other words, is the time compensable and is it hours worked? And so in Mendiola, there were security guards um, who were on call. Uh, so they were on patrol for eight hours a day, and then they were on call for another eight hours. And the employer, and this was on construction sites, um, and then they had to you know, live in trailers on the construction site too. And the employer did not pay at all. Uh, for the eight hours that the security guards were on call on the theory that this time is not hours worked and it's not compensable. And Mendiola, uh, in Mendiola, the the California Supreme Court said that that on-call time was hours worked. Uh, And it elicited various factors, all of which go to whether or not the employer was exercising control um, over the employees during that time. Um, And so... Again, you know, there's no issue in Augustus that the rest break time is hours worked and it is already paid. So Mendiola really addresses a slightly different issue, which, you know, has already, it's not in dispute in this case. Um, but the Court of Appeal did, you know, rely on Mendiola uh, to say and to make a distinction between, you know, being ready to work and and working itself. So being on call, you know, you can be paid for that time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're working. Um, so that at oral argument, um, in fact, uh, ABF's counsel, you know, because the Supreme Court had specifically asked about Mendiola in its um, the two issues that are up for review in this case, um, ABM's counsel said, well, some of the factors that Mendiola looked at and, you know, can guide the court's analysis here because in Mendiola, they said that whether uh, the employee has a pager actually uh, frees up the employee and creates flexibility and is actually is a factor that um, goes in favor of not paying for the time. And so ABM's counsel pointed out, well, here, having this pager could actually ease restrictions on security guards to be able to enjoy their time and go elsewhere um, than not having one would. You mentioned some of the language in that California Supreme Court decision in Mendiola as referring to the important inquiry being control over the 
employee and, and that mm-hmm. maybe de- determining the outcome there. But I suppose, as you say, the contexts are a bit different. There, you, uh, the court was determining whether compensation needed to be provided. Here, the compensation is already provided, certainly during rest period. So it's a bit different. But I mean, that language, the thought of control, harkens back a bit to the trial court's ruling here. Do you think it suggests that the, the state high court might do this case similarly to um, the way the trial court did? You know, I I don't think that that would be the proper analysis because, again, you know, it's important to distinguish two concepts here. Control goes to, you know, compensability. And it also, in Brinker, went to whether or not you were relieved of all duty. Um, and so I think that is entirely different than paid time, where, in fact, the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement, which is the agency um, charged with enforcing the labor code and the wage adder, has said in opinion letters that, you know, you can require employees to remain on the premises during rest breaks. So there is some ability to control that the employer retains during rest breaks precisely because, um, you know, they're, they're paid and there is not that relieved of all duty requirement. So I don't, I think, in short, that Mendiola can exist at the same time as a rule that says that on-call time is still a valid rest break. You can still be paid and still be required to be paid for on-call time while still being on a break. Maybe setting aside for a second the question of whether or not being on call during rest breaks violates labor standards. And we can ask sort of a normative question here. Justice Liu posed the possibility of, of placing a blanket prohibition against employers being able to contact employees during rest periods. What, um, what in your opinion, would be, would be wrong with, with imposing such a rule as that? You know, it's interesting. Listening to the oral arguments, it seems the justices really were sort of broadly quite concerned with crafting a ruling that injustice lose words would not be a recipe for litigation. They really want to come up with a rule that is easily applicable to other, you know, work environments and workplaces and scenarios beyond just the security guard carrying a pager. Um, and so I think it was in that context that Justice Lou said, well, wouldn't it be a simple rule to implement to just, you know, create this firewall employer, you can't contact the employee at all. An employee, you can just refuse to, to come if, if called. And, you know, my view of the argument is I don't think even plaintiff's counsel um, advocated for such a, a, a bright line rule and acknowledged that, you know, in the practical world, employers need to run their businesses and they may have needs to call employees back, whether it be for emergencies or scheduling issues, and a good employee would go back Um so I think as a practical matter, such a rule would really make it hard for workplaces to function. Um, and I don't think it's a rule that's necessarily, it's, it's not required by the statutes and the wage orders that are at issue here. And of course, you know, one other thing to keep in mind is if the employer actually does call the employee back to work, um, then that employee, you know, can either, will either get a rest break premium, the one hour of pay, or will get a rest break scheduled later. So it's not... It's, it's not as though, you know, calling the employee back means that, you know, there's no remedy available. Sure. They would potentially get the, the rest break later, or he'd say be compensated um, more right. highly. Okay. Maybe touching on one other point brought up by Justice Liu, it's the, the issue of psychological rest. As we discuss this issue, we largely talk about sort of the physical nature of a rest period. If the employee is up and doing something like a work duty or if he or she is able to relax and, and sit. But... Justice Liu mentions that even if you are resting and sitting um, still and the fact that you're mentally aware that at any moment you could be called back to work prevents you from sort of achieving the, the psychological rest that could be viewed as part of what rest periods are for. Um, what do you make of, of that suggestion? Yeah, again, I think it's part of this, this broader struggle with trying to understand what it means to not work and what it means to rest in in a workplace, but balancing that against the practical realities of work, um, you know, and if simply having the thought that you could be called back from a rest break could invalidate the rest break, it would create huge workplace liability um, uh, in every workplace, particularly in a day and age where everyone has a cell phone and everyone is reachable you know, whether it's a tap in, on the shoulder in the break room or a call while an employee is at the food court at the mall next door, I mean, it can happen. Um, 
But if it doesn't, in fact, happen, and it didn't happen at all at ABM, the idea that, you know, the mere possibility of being called back and the thought of being called back invalidates the break is, I think, just an unworkable and impractical uh, rule, given the reality of how, you know, we all live today. And also, you know, as a legal matter, you know, the statute says you can't work. It doesn't say employers can somehow insulate employees from thinking about work because, you know, if that were the case, I'd be <laughs> paid for my time thinking about work on Sunday night or on my way, you know, into work on my commute, neither of which is, is compensable. So I think the idea of, you know, being psychologically free of the burden of work might, you know, it's an interesting idea, but it's just not workable or required in practice, I don't think. And touching on sort of practical realities and, and as you say, sort of uh, increased technological connectivity with everyone carrying cell phones, it, it does seem to be a bit more challenging today than it was even when this lawsuit was filed 10 years ago for people to be completely removed from reachability, from employees actually to be insulated. I mean, when the lawsuit was filed, the issue was they were carrying radios. But now, like you say, they probably would all have cell phones. They're reachable, even if the court would say, well, you can't make them carry radios. It just seems like it might be um, sort of challenging. Is that technological development something that has some bearing on this appeal? You know, in some ways it it, it does in terms of the impact that it could have depending on how the, the, the court rules. You know, if this mere possibility of, of recall and, you know, just being reachable becomes a relevant inquiry, then I think that'll be a tremendous challenge. Uh, because, as you said, everybody's got phones and everybody's reachable. I mean, you would end up in a situation where, uh, you know, employers would say, well, give, relinquish your BlackBerry or relinquish your pager or other employer-provided device before you go on a break because we just don't want to risk, you know, liability. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think it's, it's um, more of an issue now. On the other hand, you know, as ABM's counsel pointed out, having a cell phone on you does in some ways ease restrictions and create more flexibility for an employee who, you know, whereas before is completely unreachable perhaps now because the employer knows that the employee is reachable by phone, they can go out and have more flexibility and do more things or, you know, leave the premises for that 10 minutes if they need to. So I think it definitely cuts both ways. Maybe one last one to wrap up. You could sort of sum up exactly what is at stake here, what the biggest impacts could be uh, if the case goes either on um, one way or, or the other for the employees here or, or the employer. Yeah, this is a, a very important case with you know many far-ranging impacts. There are many wage orders that apply to, with similar requirements that apply in a wide array of industries from retail to healthcare, you name it. Um, and that's precisely why, you know, Cypharth, my firm, and many others prepared amicus briefs in this case. I think there were close to 20 amicus briefs filed uh, precisely because this is such a fundamental issue that affects so many workplaces. Um, so I think if the Court of Appeals opinion is reversed and the Supreme Court adopts a standard close to the, you know, the broad standard adopted by the trial court, uh, it could create huge potential liability uh, for employers for past practices. And we could, you know, potentially expect that same blueprint of, you know, class certification and, and summary judgment motions that was done in this case to be repeated um, in, in, in workplaces throughout that have on-call policies or even, uh, you know, informal requirement to main, be reachable. Um, and that's not limited to security guard firms at all. It can be in all manner of uh, uh, industries and workplaces. Um, and it could also, I think, fundamentally alter how rest breaks are provided going forward. I mean, depending on how broad a test of the Supreme Court formulates, you could see, as I said, employers telling supervisors, you know, do not contact employees and having affirmative policies against responding to work calls and except in case of emergencies or, you know, having employees relinquish their company devices before they head out the door. And you would end up with a situation where the rest break is essentially indistinguishable from a meal break, even though, you know, one is paid and one is not. Um, and it would, I think, be a, a very big change to the way things are done right now. Um, on the other hand, if, if the, the Supreme Court affirms the Court of Appeals uh, opinion, I don't think it would have as much of a, an impact in terms of you know, going forward how people do things. It would you know, generally maintain the status quo to a much greater degree. 
you know, it would um, potentially put an end to, you know, other class actions pending that pose similar arguments as they do right now. Um, and I think it could have the benefit uh, of providing clear, depending on how the Supreme Court lays out the standard, to provide some clearer guidance um, and authority saying, you know, it is okay to be on call while you're on break, uh, which I think could be helpful. Um, so, you know, depending on how they go, it, it could be a very big change or, or not a big change at all. Okay. Uh, well, certainly a case whose, whose outcome will command the attention of employment lawyers and employers around the state. Ms. Kieran Selden from Seiforth and Shaw, really appreciate you being on the podcast to talk about it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. One more time, that was Ms. Kieran Selden of Seiforth Shaw discussing Augustus v. ABM Security Services, a case which heard oral arguments last week for the California High Court. We'll move now to my discussion with John Cannon on the case of SEC v. Jensen from the Ninth Circuit, which stands to significantly expand company executive liability in the wake of financial restatements. We're joined now by John Cannon, shareholder at Stradling, where he's the chair of the litigation department and where his work includes defense of companies alleged to have violated securities laws. Mr. Cannon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, right, too, we're talking about SEC versus Jensen, a Ninth Circuit filing pertaining to the liability of company executives in the wake of financial restatements. But uh, before we get into the ruling, let's talk about the company here at issue and the defendants, Peter Jensen and his colleague, Thomas DeCulve, and their company, Basin Water. What were the, the actions that prompted this SEC suit? Well, uh, what happened was this was the company founded in uh, 1999 by Peter Jensen to manufacture water treatment units for municipalities. And um, in 2004, uh, the company hired uh, Tukov as a CFO, and Tukov was getting the company ready uh, with Jensen to go public in 2006. And uh, shortly after they went public, within the next two years, um, uh, there, uh, there became issues or allegations which surfaced afterwards relating to that time period where there were questions raised, particularly by the SEC, allegations made by the SEC, that the company had not been following GAAP requirements in connection with reporting its revenue, particularly with regards to, I believe it was two circumstances, one related to loans and the other related to contingent uh, agreements where the, uh, the agreement hadn't been finalized, but had still had some contingencies to it. And the allegation was that the uh, this raised the revenue of the company um, inaccurately, and that the company's public filings after it went public in 2006 included these numbers, and these numbers, according to the SEC, were um, misleading and not accurate, and uh, that was the basis upon which the SEC uh, decided to open an investigation and pursue the defendants in connection with the matter. That acronym you mentioned, GAP, uh, Generally Accepted Accounting Principles, correct? Correct. So now these two defendants leave the company in, in 2008 with some bonuses for their work. But after their departure, the company restates its financials for 2006 and seven, which impacts its stock price. Just very quickly, could you remind me why financial restatements issue? Essentially, a publicly traded company notices there's some sort of error that's happened, um, resulting in some incorrect information in a previous one. What uh, what tends to cause these restatements? Is it usually you know foul play or more often carelessness or just sort of um, typos, things like that? Well, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't exactly call them typos. <laughs> um, the, the, the standard that is set, uh, it really comes from the Financial Accounting Standards Board, or FASB, uh, that calls for revision of a previously issued financial statement to correct an error. Now, an error um, has to be a material error, but materiality is not something that the SEC has uh, likes to define or ever defines. Uh, other than to say that it's information which would be important to the decision of an investor. Um, so it's very vague. There is a quantitative standard and a qualitative standard that auditors look at uh, with regards to the issue. Quantitatively, uh, you know, it's about 5 to 10 to 10% of pre-tax income. Qualitatively, it's, it's more of an open issue. Qualitative issues could relate to inadequate controls. They could also relate to um, allegations of lack of reliability in management uh, so that the auditors have a difficult time, you know, relying upon the representations of management. 
So um, things that cause restatements, um, <laughs> I, I would say run the gamut everywhere from uh, innocent mistakes <clears throat> all the way to actionable fraud uh, and everything in between. Um, there can be a number of different reasons why a company would need to restate its financials. Um, and so it could be a revenue recognition issue. It could be an expense issue. It could be a whole number of host of issues which uh, are reflected in a company's financial statement. Uh, the, the baseline issue, though, is that there has been some form of a material error. Sure, and, and no matter the cause, I'm sure always a concern for shareholders and, and certainly an alert to the Security Exchange Commission. So the SEC brings suit here, and, and we'll talk about sort of two claims principally as they're on the meat of the appellate ruling. One is a claim brought under the Security and Exchange Act Rule 13A-14, and one is brought under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, Section 304. So let's unpack each of those a bit. What do those different rules and sections prescribe and provide for in terms of remedies? Okay, and um, 13A14 requires that for every uh, report that's filed under the Exchange Act, the CEO and the CFO are required to certify the accuracy of the financial statement. So the certification actually states that the report does not contain any untrue statement of material fact necessary in order to make the statements made in light of the circumstances under which the statements were made, not misleading. So that really is kind of a fraud standard. That's really basically almost a definition of fraud. So basically, um, if you were to look at it in that context, what the CEO and CFO are certifying is that these are accurate financials. They comply with GAAP. They have been done properly and that the proper controls are in place and that, in fact, um, uh, they are uh, true and reliable. With respect to SOX 304, which is a completely separate section, that is a specific section that relates to uh, if an issuer is required to do an accounting restatement due to material noncompliance of the issuer as a result of misconduct, undefined, the CFO and CEO must reimburse uh, all the incentive, equity, and bonus compensation for uh, each of their prior 12 months preceding the restatement. So in that instance, basically is to say, look, if there was a mistake and it did have to be corrected, the CEO and CFO are required to disgorge uh, incentive, equity, uh, bonus compensation for the time period. And the notion, if you can kind of think about it, there is some rational sense to it in some respects. So let's say you have a you have a situation where a company, uh, the CFO and the CEO, are inflating revenue to be larger than it should be according to GAAP, and have the auditors have been misled, and revenue is is stated much more highly than it should be, and because of that high stated revenue, you know, um, the officers are rewarded, uh, or so the senior officers are rewarded for having um, achieved this great revenue, and so the notion is this kind of a rule basically makes sense in the sense that we're going to take away that extra compensation you earned because it was tied to these inflated revenue statements. It is an example. Then maybe on both counts, I know the district court sided with the defendants as to rule um, 13A-14. Why did the district court find that for the defendants in this case? Well, the, the district court had ruled based upon an argument made by the defendants uh, at, this is at the trial court level, that 13A14 didn't create a cause of action that was independent from the Exchange Act's provisions, and that the only cause of action that was really created under 13A14 was where the, either the CFO or the CFO, CEO, had not provided any signature. So basically there was a complete failure to abide by the requirement to provide a signature. Um, and that's the Ninth Circuit basically saying, no, we that's not that wasn't a correct legal analysis. On 304, the district court had also agreed with the defendants on 304 that there was, um, the defendants had argued that there was no claim uh, because the alleged violations uh, were not based on the acts of the defendant. And basically that argument there was to the core of 304, which was uh, if in fact there is misconduct, does that misconduct have to be the misconduct of the CEO or CFO in order for there to be a clawback? Before we get to the appellate court's treatment of these two claims, I know at the outset of their analysis, they first reckoned with whether or not the SEC had been entitled to a jury trial on these claims. The, the district court 
had a, a bench trial, and the appellate panel said that that wasn't sufficient. Why, um, in this particular context, must a, a jury trial occur? Well, what happened was is that uh, the SEC filed its complaint. They did not ask for a jury trial, which is the standard process in federal court litigation that at the outset of the complaint, you ask for a jury trial. And so um, it, when the defendants answered, they actually asked for a jury trial in their answer. Um, at a later point in time, the defendants withdrew their request for a jury trial, and so the court ended up ruling that we're not going to have a jury trial. Uh, the Ninth Circuit reversed on that issue and said, essentially, that the SEC could rely upon the fact that the defendants had asked for a jury trial in order to maintain a jury trial and that it was not an, you know, an immaterial error such that uh, the court remanded so that now there will be a jury trial. Sure. And in addition to now there being a jury trial, there'll be some additional doctrinal guidance here provided by the panel in terms of the 13A-14 question and the Section 304 claim. So we'll get to 13A-14 first. What did the panel hold on this question? As you say, the district court essentially said there's no claim except for where the executive failed to sign the document. The, the rule says the executive must sign it. If he doesn't, there's a claim. But if he signs it and it's false, there's no claim there. What did the panel have to say on that point? Well, what the panel did is it basically, with 13A14, it said it basically looked at the statute itself and from the language of the statute and then also looking at similar rules, specifically sections 13A and 13D, determined that there is a cause of action and that there is, it's not necessarily dependent upon uh, other violations of the Exchange Act. So basically, there can be a violation if the CEO or CFO sign the certification, and in fact, that certification was not done, not made accurately. And, and that's where we get into a little bit of the, the tension in the case, which is, and this is what the dissent points out, which is, uh, or excuse me, the concurring opinion points out, uh, which agrees that there should be a cause of action, but disagrees that there shouldn't be some notion of falsity tied into the determination of what is in the cause of action. And this goes into the question of, you know, should the court have looked at what the state of mind requirement is in connection with this cause of action? And uh, it's a little puzzling um, because what the court basically did is say, yes, there is a cause of action. And yes, if a certification is uh, turns out to be, you know, inaccurate in the future, there is a claim. But then it really didn't flesh out the parameters of the claim. And I think that's what the concurring opinion was pointing out was that, look, there should be more contours. The notion here is there can be times when a certification is based upon good faith, but inaccurate information, and the certification is, is not accurate. And there's a question about whether that constitutes a violation or not. Um, and that's where I think the concurring opinion uh, makes a good point that, it would have been better for the court to address the contours of the claim in more detail um, so that there's better guidance given not only to the district court, but to companies who are in the process of trying to comply <laughs> with the requirements uh, and lawyers having to advise their clients as to what these various uh, requirements are. So like you say, with the panel's ruling, in an instance where there is a, a good faith error that results in a certification being or containing some falsity or some inaccuracy, then that alone, you know, completely good faith error could give rise to a disgorgement of a, a year's incentive bonus or things of that nature. And, and that's the concern is that or just a, a square reading or a four corners reading of the decision seems to make that implication. Um, and in fact, the, the court noted in a footnote that it was purposely not um, addressing Sienter because the parties hadn't briefed the issue. Mm -hmm. And the concurrence, again, takes the, the majority to task on that issue. It's basically saying, yes, that's all well and good, but pronouncing a broad cause of action without giving contours to it uh, really uh, puts everyone at a a disadvantage and likely creates more litigation, not only in the pending action, but in other actions, um, because it really is, even though it purports to be resolving issues, it's really more opening issues than it's resolving. And 
with the ruling on the, the other claim, the Section 304 claim, I believe the majority left some open-endedness there as well, right? Yeah, and essentially what happened there is that um, the court looked at 304 and looked at, again, the plain language of the statute and then the legislative history and a couple of district court opinions. Uh, and again, uh, without really addressing the Sienta requirement, found that there was a cause of action, which the concurrence agreed with. But again, there's a, there's a phrase in 304 which uh, requires that there be misconduct. And the question really becomes, you know, what does that misconduct mean? What is misconduct in that sense? And in particular, what does the CEO or the CFO need to know for there to be a violation relating to that misconduct? And so, it again, it leaves open this question. You have this idea that, yeah, there's this cause of action, but it leaves open kind of what does it mean to have a violation? What does it mean to have misconduct? What are the elements of those claims? What are the defenses in those cases? Is there a good faith defense? Is there not a good faith defense? Um, these are largely equitable concepts, and how do those play in here? So I feel like we've 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 kind of said yes, there's a cause of action, but we haven't identified the various elements, and I think that's true on both uh, 13A14 as well as on 304. And the odd thing is, going back to 13A14 is that the language the majority uses to, to, to talk about um, what it expects out of a CEO and CFO, it talks about there being uh, an inherent truthfulness requirement in, in 13A14 when you sign a certification. And it also talks about the fact that the, uh, the CEO and CFO have to have a, a belief that the statements are accurate. And it strikes me that those kinds of that kind of language really lends itself more towards a discussion of a mental state and if you're talking about mental state then you're really talking about what mental state is required or should be required for there to be a violation so i feel like even though the the majority didn't address mental state or scienter squarely it also left open the door with regards to uh mental state because it recognized in and of itself a truthfulness requirement, as well as a belief by the CEO and CFO with regards to the accuracy of um, the financial statements. As you say, the, the question remains at least somewhat open. You mentioned the concurrence by Judge Bea suggests that it should be fleshed out a bit more. In what ways does he suggest that these causes of action and claims should um, should be fleshed out? And in your opinion, what uh, what sort of scienter requirement should there be? Well, I think on 13A14, the concurrence uh, makes very clear that not every single cert certification is um, is going to be based based upon um, a mistake that is a as a fraud, and and that there needs to be some recognition that some mental state needs to be recognized, some active mental state needs to be recognized as part of the cause of action for there to be a violation. And I think the same is true with respect to 304, that, again, the mental state required, um, that there needs to be a more active discussion of, of what misconduct means and what the CEO or CFO really needs to know about that misconduct. Uh, I think those two issues, I think, will require uh, future decisions. Uh, as much as this court seems to be implying uh, that it's a strict liability standard, um, I don't think the issue is closed completely because of the language that the court uses. As an attorney that advises company executives, now based on this ruling, what are the sorts of pieces of advice that you would give to, to executives in terms of how they need to implement company controls and manage their, their financial statements and, and their companies? Well, um, Look, I think the uh, the easy answer to that is to simply say more compliance is is smart compliance and good compliance. Uh, and I, while that's true, additional compliance and layers of compliance with regards to having the proper controls in place and having uh, the the kind of uh, reporting um, that will allow the CFO and CEO to have confidence in. Their statements. Look, those kind of things are always going to be good ideas. So, uh, you know, compliance is a um, uh, is really 
going to save a lot of people in a lot of instances. Having said that, it's not going to save well-intentioned errors, uh, mistakes, and uh, I think there the issue will be, you know, do we see a change coming with regards to CEOs, CFOs wanting to put compensation uh, into different buckets, for example, more into base as opposed to into incentive compensation. And the truth is, I'm not sure that is going to happen. It hasn't happened uh, to date. And, you know, some of these rules have been around for a while. Uh, and so we haven't seen a big trend in that direction. The other thing is that um, Dodd-Frank, uh, when Dodd-Frank was, you know, came out, and it, it requires also that there be clawbacks and those uh, clawbacks, many would argue, are broader even than what 304 um, provides with regards to restatements. It'll be interesting to see um, how the final rules of the Dodd-Frank clawbacks mesh with these interpretations of 304, for example. Um, there are going to be similarities, but there are also going to be differences. And in fact, 304, in some ways, depending on how it's interpreted, could end up being broader on some fronts than the Dodd-Frank requirements. Dodd-Frank could be broader than 304 with regards to other requirements. Perhaps one last one, if you could, and sum up the way that the, the doctrine stands now in terms of both Rule 13-14 and Section 304, and then perhaps how you think it might develop. The panel here seems to assert that it's supplied a clear rule that can apply in these cases, but as you suggest, and as the concurrence suggests also, there seems to be some necessary refinement. Well, the first thing I would say, it'll be interesting to watch this case continue through the trial court, uh, because the Ninth Circuit here has remanded this case for further proceedings, how the district court reacts to the um, Ninth Circuit in terms of implementing this cause of action, uh, we'll call it the contourless cause of action, will be interesting. Yeah, the the court, district court could take a, you know, a very rigid approach and call it an issue of strict liability. Uh, on the other hand, it could look at the concurrence and some of the language in the majority opinion and devise jury instructions, which are slightly different than the opinion um, that it's a strict liability standard. So I think it'll be interesting to watch as this case goes through the district court, how that um, gets fleshed out. With regards to other cases, it, I think two things. One, it will be interesting to see if the SEC uses this opinion to bring more cases because they haven't brought a lot of matters with regards to um, these provisions uh, and whether there'll be a change in enforcement process because of it. It'll also be interesting to see whether uh, private plaintiffs try to use these sections in connection with potential derivative claims. For example, if a company fails to seek reimbursement for, from a CFO or CEO, shareholder plaintiffs may attempt to argue that the Ninth Circuit has made it very clear that this is a strict liability test and that, in fact, uh, the, core, the company should be seeking uh, repayment from the CFO and CEO to the company. And if the company doesn't, um, then the directors have breached their duties to the shareholders. I'm sure there will be a, a lot of folks that will be paying close attention to the way this case develops and, and future ones that relate to it. And also, I'm sure a lot of executives that will be seeking the counsel of knowledgeable securities law attorneys like yourself, uh, Mr. John Cannon of Stradling. Thanks for being on the show to talk about it. Thank you for having me. And with that, our program for October 7th, 2016, is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Ms. Kieran Selden from Seifarth Shaw, Mr. John Cannon of Stradling. I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. It's much appreciated. And thanks go out also to members of my production staff here, including Helen Enriquez, Ellen Ireland, Nicholas Sonnenberg, Dominic Fracasa, and of course, our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.